Hello. Good things can come from accidents. A few weeks ago, a friend shared with me a long read article written as the US withdrew from Afghanistan. This beautifully written piece traced the origins of the tragic debacle to the initial simplistic and rather arrogant American response to 9-11, something exemplified by the way the few lone voices calling at the time for reflection and caution were treated. I loved the piece, so much that I looked up the author, and the first thing that came up on my search engine was that she had a new book of essays coming out. So, probably reflecting my own shallowness, I didn't bother doing any more research, but simply asked my editor to see if we could book her. And that's why I found myself over the last couple of weeks reading, with great pleasure, I should add, a set of essays not about American politics or international relations, but about motherhood, literature, art, philosophy, science, misogyny. It's been a happy accident, and today on Bridges to the Future, I'll discuss accidents like this and some of the many topics covered in this wonderful collection, Mothers, Fathers and Others, with its author, the novelist, poet, commentator, philosopher, Siri Hutvet. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. Siri, I hope I got that right, that attempt at pronunciation. It's absolutely lovely. Thank you very much. It's a difficult name. I've been asked many times how to say it, and you said it very well. Thank you. I've got a boring name, so I I envy people with interesting names. Now, let's just talk about this kind of serendipity point. I mean, you write a lot about books in the essays, a fantastic piece about Wuthering Heights that maybe want to go back and read it. I'm going to come back to that later. But there is something, isn't there, about some books that we only come into contact with by pure chance. We we kind of pick it up at someone's house or someone's left it on the train or something like that. Do you, you must be somebody, the overwhelming majority of what you read, you read deliberately and need to read it as part of your studies. But have there been moments when there's been serendipity that has led you to discover somebody or enter a new area of interest? Absolutely. And I think one of the sadder changes in contemporary life has been that it is more difficult to browse in bookstores. In fact, I used to go to the old foils whenever I was in London, and they had lots of old books, some of them that hadn't been touched, I think, for (laughs) decades. And I would always go up to the medical section and look through books to see if there was something that interested me. There often was. And I would return to the United States with medical texts from the 1920s that were no longer available and discover very interesting ideas, treatments, etc. inside some of those books. And that's less possible now because, first of all, they cleaned up foils. It's a very nice bookstore, but they got rid of a lot of those old moldering volumes that used to be on their shelves. And is there a broader problem here? So in the old days, we'd pick up a newspaper that we were interested in some of it, but 
we would flick through the, all of it and occasionally come across articles and that would pique our interest in a different way. And I know that both my sons actually went to university in the States and their reading list, it, they weren't ever encouraged to read books, but very specific pages <laughs> of, of books. You know, social media is all about directing us to exactly the stuff that interests us, that it's, I, I think it has become more difficult, hasn't it, to trip over interesting stuff accidentally. Yeah, I think you're right. The accident is probably less possible now. When I first moved to New York City in 1978, I spent a lot of time in various bookstores. There were more then than there are now. And just looking for poetry books, for example, by poets I had never heard of. And there were so many books that at that time could remain on the shelves sometimes for years. So this has changed. And I do read often very deliberately, often because I've read something which then refers to someone else, someone I don't know about, and I will follow that through the bibliography or the footnote. You know, that's one book leads to another. And in my case, one book often leads to a book in a in a field that I am not necessarily educated in. And then I have to begin to educate myself in that whole discipline to be able to understand what I want to read. So my reading story, there is an essay in the book called Open Borders, has been very much one of open borders. And that does include accidents. Yeah, and I want to come to that in, in a minute because... The, the the essays are. I mean, to call them eclectic, I think is is not sufficient. Um, but multidisciplinary sounds a little academic. But it is remarkable <laughs> the fields that you that you traverse. It, it's a book of of essays, of course. And you you've written novels, you've written poems, you've written in many many forms. And 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 their essays are very different lengths. Some are I don't know fifteen hundred words. Some are maybe getting more like twenty thousand words. Tell me. Yeah. Tell me about the essay as a form for you. One of the areas that's grown most in recent years has been the long read, which is a form of essay, of course. What is it particularly that essays offer you as a, as a writer? Well, for me and for many other people, I think, who write essays, one of the great models is Montaigne, the French writer, who engaged in the essay and was responsible, I think, in many ways for creating the essay form. It's a way of searching in prose, which makes it a very flexible form. I think outside of the novel, the essay is probably, or the personal essay is probably the most flexible form possible. So it's always a search for me. I start and then I'm trying, as the word essayer, that's what it means in French, I am trying my way forward. So it's a form of exploration. I love the form. I really do. I like its flexibility. I like the possibility of leaps too. Montaigne often would do that. He would end something and suddenly we would jump into a related <laughs> idea, but the reader has to jump with the writer and that gives a kind of pleasure as well. Yeah, I think it felt to me about what I felt about essays having read 
your book because you you play with different forms of not just different lengths but different ways you go about it is there is an attentiveness to form in an essay which you know I for this podcast read a lot of non-fiction books mm-hmm. and I would say nearly all of them would be a third better if they were a third shorter and I, I feel there's a lack of attention to form. There's a kind of sense of let's just chuck everything we possibly can into this book. <laughs> Whereas essays, they are crafted in a way that I'm afraid a lot of books don't feel as though they're terribly crafted. That's part of it, isn't it? The attention to form. I think so. And in my case, also the attention to music. I don't think the essay is just a way to get information out there. It's not journalism. It's an art form. And style is important. The music is important. The movement of the essay as a whole is important. Therefore, yeah, I think of it on par with the highest and best literary forms. Now, turning to some of the things that you focus on in the book. So, as the title of the book implies, there's a lot in here about families. And there's a wonderful, wonderful essay about about your own mother. You talk also quite a lot about your, your grandmother. But there was something that hit me about this, which is that you also talk about Freud quite a lot. And I guess one of the things about Freud is that, in a sense, he would say that all families are dysfunctional. <laughs> uh, but yet, whilst you talk a lot about your family, you are almost entirely positive about everything from your marriage to your mother to your grandparents. And I, I don't get any sense that you're sugarcoating it, but I guess I kind of felt we live in a confessional age, don't we? Yes. And yes. and I couldn't have felt there's something interesting about somebody who is a kind of, I don't know if you call yourself a kind of neo-Freudian or whatever, but who's a Freudian who talks a lot about their family, but, but in, in such completely, almost completely unproblematic terms. Yes. Well, I, I think, for example, the essay that I wrote about my grandmother, a farm woman who was the daughter of Norwegian immigrants, that essay I do say, for example, that I think my father's rather troubled relationship with her infected me. And that because of that, and because of his fixation on the paternal genealogy of his family, I needed to live with the memory of my grandmother for some time before I could separate those memories from my father's thoughts, if you will. Mm. So that's, mm, I don't know, it's that movement away from the paternal toward the maternal side is part of that essay. I think writing about my own mother, a person I will tell you I loved very deeply, is perhaps unusual because often when people write about families, mothers, siblings, it's often because there's some, you know, big problem. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) In my case, I was interested in writing about my mother, whom I loved, through the lens of broader ideas about maternity and investigating her life through those ideas. My mother was a wonderful mother. And she took, you know, very good care of her children. And I loved her till she died. And she is still part of my internal 
mythology, I miss her every day. So I think that in this sense, it's a rather unusual way of of writing about mothers because we did not have enormous conflicts. And at the same time, I didn't want to turn my mother into the sentimental image of maternity that is abroad in the culture. She had, as I point out, many lives. You know, human beings are not things, but processes, right? We evolve, we change. And my relationship with my mother changed. When I was in my 50s and she was in her 80s, this is after my father had died, we developed a whole new kind of intimacy. And that's something I wanted to pay tribute to. You know, the mother of the child and the mother of the adult were different. And do you think, Siri, that there's something about being a migrant or the child of migrants that makes the relationship between the generations more poignant because it's 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 through that relationship that one is linking as it were to the old country is that part of the of the power of the relationship i think it was very much part of my childhood and my familial life my father was the grandchild of immigrants, but he grew up speaking Norwegian and married a Norwegian citizen, my mother. And my mother spoke Norwegian to me. It was my first language. I think living between two cultures, which is very much part of the immigrant experience, affected me deeply. And I think that it also is part of my epistemological pluralism, my sense that the only way to look at a topic or a problem is to investigate it from a number of different angles, right? And this usually means approaching it from not just a single disciplinary point of view, but from several. If you think about language, right, you know anyone who speaks more than one language knows that there are words in one of those languages that really cannot be translated into the other. And that those words tell one something about the nature of the culture, what's important, what's less important, how a specific part of human life is viewed. So I think my bilingual heritage, now think of all the people who are not just bilingual, but trilingual and quadrilingual, they have access to multiple ways of seeing and experiencing the world simply because they have access to more than one language. Yeah, it's fascinating. I wonder whether I wonder whether sometimes some element of anti-immigrant feeling is is a, a certain amount of envy for that plurality <laughs> of culture. I know that I often feel envy of people who are multilingual because I'm hopelessly not, but also people who have got those kind of different reference points. Speaking of families and speaking of envy, your chapter on misogyny, which I think is probably the most polemical of the of the chapters in the book, I'll turn to that now. I'm, I'm moving all around the book, but there is a link here because I think you want to argue that to understand misogyny, we need to understand and think about how men feel about 
about birth. Yes. Uh, and in a sense that, that to, to some extent, misogyny involves a, a kind of form of birth envy. Yes. I think it is not to say that this is missing from the scholarship. And I try to bring in some names later in that essay that do, in fact, discuss this. You know, womb envy is not a new idea. But I am approaching misogyny in the West from its very deep roots in Greek culture. What has fascinated me as I grow older are two things, and both points are made in the book. One is how long it takes for ideas to die, (laughs) that we are still deeply influenced, whether we have read deeply in the Greeks. I certainly cannot read Greek, so you know I'm, I'm not claiming firsthand knowledge. But when you return to both Plato and Aristotle in different ways, for example, you discover a rather shocking degree of woman hatred, and it goes through Greek culture. And I point out that in Greek art, There are no images of natural birth, only unnatural birth. In other traditions, birth images do exist, including Hindu painting, for example. So this is an omission that has meaning. And that is my other point. Sometimes what is missing tells us more than what is present. And I take this idea of omission and old, old ideas that don't die all the way into the use of the idea of a soul, for example, and male birth in genetics. I mean, I, I was really stunned. I've been stunned to read the neo-Darwinian conception of gestation, which is a form of genetic determinism, which is a way of making the gene into a kind of eternal soul. It's very platonic. Yeah, I found that argument really, really powerful that there's an attempt, this attempt in a way to imagine birth without women that's right. <laughs> Which, I think it's a very old fantasy, and I think yeah. it's and so one if women that are simply continues. the carriers of DNA that they just pass it on from one to the other, which it just misses out. As you said, that I mean, it's, it's biologically incoherent. It's not actually what happened. It's not actually how fetuses develop, and it misses out so many elements of the biological relationship between the growing fetus and the mother. But I hadn't seen that link before, that there is this link between kind of mythical notions of somehow taking women out of the process and the reduction of the role of of the mother simply to being, as it were, the kind of passive gene carrier. Exactly. Exactly. Which is very much the way the Aristotle, even who did not agree with Plato, but his idea was that the female was matter, inert matter, and the male, the also sperm, was the animating principle form. And that stubborn idea of the woman as a host or house for male sperm 
has continued in many ways into modern science. And I did want to stress that so that it can be seen. I mean, this has come out of a lot of research. I'm planning to write a nonfiction book about the placenta, and I've been doing research for years. I do talk briefly about the placenta in that essay. Yeah, well, it's very powerful. Now, th- this book is not in any way a, a kind of a self-help book, but <laughs> I, I have to, I'm going to have to share. One of the things you say in your book, by the way, is that often when you interview by men, they, they make the interview about themselves rather than you. So I'm desperately going to try to avoid doing that. But <laughs> there's a short essay in the book about you going to look at a work of art for, I think, forgetting yourself and you're there for several hours observing this wonderful painting. And, and then there's the absolutely brilliant chapter on Wuthering Heights. So I'm now, I'm torn between, will my next novel be one of yours or Wuthering Heights? But <laughs> there is this appreciation. I, I have always found that so difficult. I, I just find it hard to slow my heart rate, to let myself go to, and I consume literature. And I don't have a confidence with it. I don't have that capacity to fall back into it, to trust my own instincts in, in relation to it. And you write beautifully about how art is only created in the act of it being consumed, being read, being appreciated, that, that it is an interaction. Do you have, I'm an old bloke, but do you have any advice about how I can how I can find a way to appreciate art and literature better than I've ever been able to do it? Because it's something I feel terribly inadequate about. <laughs> I'm going to quote myself here. Art is like sex. If you don't relax, you won't enjoy it. I like that line. It's a little funny. I was meant to have some humor to it. But actually, I think it's true that giving up and letting go are key to art. And you mentioned looking at a painting for a couple of hours. It's St. Francis, which is in the Frick. And what I find when I look at a painting for a long time and just let myself go look at it, is that my biases, we all have them, fall away and that I am beholden to what's in front of me and that my narcissism or my preconceived ideas about what, say, the painting or the book is supposed to be vanish. I think that's very important because we are all filled with expectations from the past that determine our perception in many ways. This is true, I think, of all human beings. You know, no one is free of those prejudices that we bring to everything we see and read. We are limited by them. But time, spending time, relaxing (laughs) and opening oneself to a work of art does have magical properties Mm. at times, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I I sometimes think it was because when I was a kid, I I spent all my time amongst adults. I didn't have any brothers or sisters and we moved around a lot. And I think I always felt a desperate need to pretend to be more grown up than I was. Mm. And this has led to an attitude of always feeling in the face of literature and art that there's something that's expected of me and that I'm searching for and and also that I watch myself 
in the act of reading and looking and and wonder whether I'm doing it right. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's that it's a conundrum, but I I'm a bit closer to it having read <laughs> having read your book. Actually, it's renewed my desire to to work at a kind of cultural mindfulness, if you'll excuse the phrase. No, I think that's a actually a lovely phrase, cultural mindfulness. I think that is what this is about. And it does have to do with actual real bodily relaxation. We are all blessed with reflective self-consciousness, right? We, we can think of ourselves as others. You know, that's what memory is. That's what the imagination is. We can recollect ourselves in the past and catapult ourselves into a future that probably many other animals are not able to do. At the same time, that self-consciousness, you know, knowing while one is reading that one is reading, <laughs> for example, can serve as a interference, right? Or saying, here I am standing looking at this painting, this mm. famous painting by Vermeer or Are my reactions right? That's what I Picasso I and yeah. exactly. And what am I supposed to feel? Am I feeling anything? I think that can interfere with taking in the work of art, which requires, yeah, relaxation, openness, and time, and getting rid of many of those preconceived ideas that we all bring to works of art. I mean, this enters again into various forms of malign prejudice, you know, reading a book by a woman and thinking that, oh God, this must be some emotional, autobiographical, you know, domestic dumb thing, or not taking seriously works by people of color. That has certainly been a traditional truth when you look at the canon, something I also write about in this book, that without a scholarship in the 20th century, I think we would have a different canon. You know, both people of color and women have been brought into the canon in ways that are enriching. So staying on, on that theme, you're a feminist, you're progressive, a believer in social justice, someone who writes eloquently about injustice. But you're also, as you as you said, you're a pluralist. You like to play with that ideas. There's a wonderfully, I and mean, I found myself laughing out loud reading the the essay <laughs> on different ways of treating the Sinbad story, for example. <laughs> Good. I know this is a bit of a trite, tired topic, sorry, but I, I still want to get your perspective on it. Sometimes it can feel as though in the culture wars, those on the progressive wing lack humour, lack subtlety. There is a kind of reductive element to some of the discourse. Do you feel that's true or do you think that's a caricature? Well, I think sometimes it becomes a caricature in media. At the same time, there are times when progressives or people on the left come very close to a form of essentialism, right? Mm. Which means mm. that they truly believe, for example, that race is not a fiction created by history, which is something I insist upon, right? That racial categories can get dangerously close to some kind of truth, which is what, you know, racism is all about, that there's some essential quality to belonging to a race 
that is true when I really do not believe that, right? These are historical sociological circumstances that have created it. The other point to be made is that I have found that humor, laughing at some of these crazy ideas, especially from, coming from the right, is insurrectionist. It is a form of rebellion too, and is often more effective than open rage. Does that make sense to you? It it does. So (laughs) I I agree with the essentialism point. I think the other thing that worries me is a kind of notion that we could ever be perfect. You know, and this goes back to the kind of Freudian elements of this. This is a very old theme, right? So utopian ideas have been around, as we know, really since writing, I think. But they are and can be dangerous. If we think about the history of Marxism and how it was embodied, if you will, in history, that's a serious warning about the notion that human beings are perfectible. And I also think it's important to recognize that no one owns the truth. No one owns the truth. And if you believe you do, then you can be headed for ideological catastrophe, right? Because once you own the truth, whether it's religious truth or political truth, then you may be willing to kill for it. And to my mind, that's dangerous. Now, I recognize that to fight injustice, one needs organization, one needs some slogans, right? You can't just put forth my big idea, which is ambiguity, (laughs) to get things done. So I think it's important to recognize the utility of, for example, a simple slogan to unite people. And at the same time, to understand that what we think of as the world, the human world, if you will, is extraordinarily complex. And that within that world, there are multiple perspectives and situations that have to be acknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think for me, just remembering that being a human being is hard and there will never be a society where being a human being isn't hard and on some levels we are the only species culturally aware of our own mortality for example i i edit a, a series of of books which are short very short books with lots of photographs and pictures which all have kind of provocative titles and i was sitting with the publishers the other day thinking of a provocative title. And I suggested, what about one called, Are We All Mentally Ill? And what I meant by, <laughs> and what I meant by that was in more and more people are getting a diagnosis of mental illness or taking mm-hmm. drugs or whatever. And you know, you think, well, where's the end point in this? You know, I run a health service organization here, and the gap between people who have a diagnosis and the, the provision that we can actually make is growing ever greater. And feels like we're on a hamster wheel, ever-growing demand that we can never catch up with. And where does this end up? And and I thought maybe maybe in a, a good way, it ends up with us all recognizing that 
it is hard to be a human being and that, yes, for some people it's very hard, you need to do something, but but it is hard for all of us. And if we recognize that, we might treat each other better. Anyway, I'm going off in a different No, viral. no, I think this is this is an interesting, you know, I um I have a position in the psychiatry department at Weill Cornell Medical College. It's a, a marginal position. I teach a seminar to psychiatric residents. I mean, this has been one of my I published in some psychiatric journals and neuroscience journals. So therefore, I got this small job. But one of the discussions in psychiatry that I brought up with my students, the psychiatrists in the seminar, is, you know, the idea of of the normal, which, as Freud himself said, is a fiction. And are we pathologizing normal states increasingly in the discipline of psychiatry. So grief, for example, is supposed to have a specific endpoint. What does that mean? Restless children, right? ADHD. Where is the border between a restless, excited child and a pathology? These are important questions to ask as a culture. Also, depression. The numbers of de- depressed people around the world are have grown astronomically. Is this because the diagnosis is made more and more often? Being sad is, of course, a human state, part of the repertoire of human emotions, and it's no fun. So where does what we think of as ordinary sadness, or when does ordinary sadness become devastating depression? I did see devastatingly depressed patients when I taught a writing seminar for psychiatric patients in the same hospital where I now have the seminar. So I am not trying to argue that depression should not be treated or that it isn't real, it's very much real. At the same time, purely pharmacological answers, I think, turn around a trend in the culture to turn everything back on the individual, right? Depression becomes a chemical brain imbalance. This is meaningless, actually, in neuroscientific terms. I mean, it, it, it means nothing. So, but this has become the popular mantra. You go and you get an SSRI and it will help treat your depression as if it is located only in your brain and your body. What about the depression that is generated by life, right? A bad job by feeling constantly confronted with racism, for example. They now know that racism can have epigenetic effects on a person and create problems such as chronic inflammation that make you vulnerable to all kinds of diseases. During the pandemic, we have indeed seen in the United States, and I'm sure elsewhere, what inequality means for health outcomes, right? So 
all of this has to be taken into consideration when we're thinking about something as widespread as depression. So, Siri, there was so much else I wanted to talk to you about. The <laughs> the amazing span of your knowledge and how often you must be irritated by non-scientists not understanding science or scientists not understanding social science or the humanities or whatever. I mean, it, you are, a, can I say a Renaissance woman or is that problematic as a, oh, as a description? No, I think that's wonderful. And I will take that compliment and hug it to my chest. Siri <laughs> Hoodsvet, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. It was really great talking to you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.